over 35 years, 110 million albums sold worldwide. Members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, eight-time Grammy Award winners, and perhaps the most unlikely foursome to have achieved these feats considering they're one of the heaviest bands on planet Earth. Well, knowing that, you know, the music scene in San Francisco was pretty unique, and knowing that uh, we had a sound, the San Francisco Bay Area sound, that really had not... Uh, made it to other parts of the country or even other parts of the globe. Yeah, you know, we knew we had we had a feeling that what we were sitting on musically was just totally unique. Um, and we also knew that we were the first band to record this kind of music to actually record it. So yeah, you know, we had an, uh, an idea that we were sitting on something that was genre-defining, for sure. This is Metallica. In their words, I'm Andy Hall, taking you on a journey through the band's 10 albums, putting everything from Kill 'Em All to Hardwired to Self-Destruct under the microscope, telling the story of these landmark releases through the eyes and the words of the four current members of Metallica. They are singer and rhythm guitarist James Hetfield, drummer Lars Ulrich, lead guitarist Kirk Hammett, and bassist Robert Trujillo. In the beginning, there was James and Lars, two opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of upbringing, size and stature, even nationality. The one thing they had in common? Their love of the new wave of British heavy metal acts that had begun to make noise overseas in the late 1970s. The two found each other in the want ad section of a suburban Los Angeles newspaper called The Recycler. The band's earliest lineups went through a number of changes at guitar and bass before Dave Mustaine and Cliff Burton were hired to man those instruments and round out the group. Through 1982, while the group worked on song ideas, drummer Lars Ulrich befriended Brian Slagle, who was in the process of putting together a compilation of local bands to be called Metal Massacre. Brian, too, was a big fan of the new wave of British heavy metal, and eventually agreed to let Lars' band, Metallica, have a spot on the tape. A big deal, considering they barely had settled on a band name at that point, let alone gotten anything actually recorded on tape. As the band continued to tweak their first batch of songs, they eventually made their way out of the garage and into local clubs, where their harder, faster, louder mentality won over fans very quickly. Word spread, and eventually Metallica began to spark some interest from record labels. The band signed their first record deal in 1983, with married couple John and Marsha Zazula, who owned and operated Megaforce Records in New York. The guys packed up a U-Haul and headed east, with the knowledge that, upon arrival, they'd be firing their lead guitarist, Dave Mustaine. It didn't take long before Metallica had made the decision to offer the job to Exodus Shredder Kirk Hammett, as James remembers that time. It was pretty much a blur, and I'm sure it was for both of them as well. Um, I remember rehearsing that day with Dave, and, uh, or the day before with Dave, and, uh, you know, we had made the decision that it, was, it, was, it wasn't working and it, and it had to change. And uh, we had had Kirk in our minds for a little while, and uh, he, he pretty much came out the same day that Dave left. So there wasn't any real gap in any time. Um, it was kind of a no-brainer, and we knew it had to be done. Uh, as far as difficult goes, I remember Lars and I walking around uh, New York City, just wondering if, you know, wow, is this the right move? Is this not the right move? And just kind of taking a day between guitar players there to... To I guess reflect on life uh, and what might happen, but I, you know, it was it was already meant to be, 
And as soon as Kirk came in and started ripping, we knew it was the right decision. Kirk's recollection of his early days as the new guy in the band offers some interesting and humorous perspective. I remember um, showing up to play with the band for the very first time in Jamaica, Queens, New York in 1983. And I remember we had rehearsed for about a week or so and played our first show. And that first show I played with him was a total disaster because I was just so nervous and trying to play well and trying to remember the tunes. And, yep, uh, it was a bit of a train wreck. But, you know... I uh, I persevered, and I believed in the music. I believed in myself. I believed in those those other guys, and you know, I realized that I was a better fit with these three other musicians that I, than I was with my former band, which surprised me completely. And so I persevered. Kill 'Em All was recorded in May of 1983. The album was released on July 25th of that same year. Here's Lars on how the band settled on the title. We were sitting around in the house where we were staying in upstate New York when we were recording uh, the album, and Cliff Burton just kind of threw out there, kill them all, kill all those record companies, kill you know all the naysayers, kill all the people in our wake. Uh, I think he had a T-shirt, um... I think there was a t-shirt or something that somebody was sporting at the time, and, and it was just borrowed from there. So how exactly did these songs come together for the guy that pens the vast majority of the band's lyrics? Here's James Hetfield on the writing process for Kill 'Em All. The Kill 'Em All songwriting had taken place years before the actual recording of the record, you know. Uh, your first record's the easy one because you've already got the songs. You've been playing them for a long time in front of people. Uh, I would say, you know, touring Kill 'Em All when we did uh, that with Raven on the Kill 'Em All for One tour in '83 across the states. That was uh, it opened up our eyes to playing not only to larger crowds but different crowds, different people from different uh, parts of the states, and. You know, uh, I don't know if it affected our songwriting. I'm sure it did, but I think the most most significant difference was our performance, uh, performing in front of people, seeing what the music does to us, seeing what the music does to other people, and allowing ourselves to get looser and crazier uh, as the tour goes on. And uh, you know. You get on stage and you, you, the music moves you a certain way, and we became more and more comfortable with that. And speaking of playing out, one of the band's early breaks came as they were invited to open for Saxon in 1983. Here's Lars Ulrich on how that opportunity came about. Well, Ron McGovney, our old bass player who was kind of, um, uh, he was very connected on Sunset Strip, and he knew a couple of the girls that ran uh, the booking office at the Whiskey. And so when Saxon would come to L.A. to play at the Whiskey, um, he dropped the tape off down there and went and, uh, and said some good things about the band. And uh, lo and behold, we convinced them that we should support Saxon at the uh, infamous Whiskey gigs. It was around this time that metal fans began to really take notice of Metallica. And not just because of their reputation as the hardest and fastest band in town. It also didn't hurt that their logo was plastered everywhere. One couldn't go very far in and around the Bay Area without seeing those famous barbs, created by none other than James Hetfield. Creating the Metallica logo was just one of those things. I, I loved art. My mom was an artist. 
Uh, I love just goofing off with pen and ink and paper. And um, I remember quickly coming up with something on a napkin. There were a couple different ideas and uh, the barbs were just, they just, they just happened. I didn't have to think too much about it. I just saw that the M and the A had a a similarity and they could uh, turn into some type of weapon of sorts. And I think the barbs become more and more uh, relevant as in, you know, the music, uh, how it kind of, it does, it sticks in you and it's hard to get out of you. So uh, yeah, that logo along with the uh, Ninja Star and, you know, helping with the load and reload stuff, lots of scary guy, lots of art I get to do in this band. It is amazing. Uh, you know, my, my second career was probably designing shirts or, uh, doing some kind of graphics. So, Hey, I get to do both. Back in 1983, a young Robert Trujillo was just beginning to discover heavy music coming from bands in and near his native Santa Monica, California. His recollection of the first time he heard Metallica and their debut album. When I first got my hands on Kill 'Em All, um, back as a late teen, um, I was drawn to all the music because there was something that was different about it that was youthful, energetic, and uh, and you just felt this sort of quality that let you know that there was something fresh and new and heavy out there uh, invading your 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 brain, your ear canal, your body. So it was a very physical thing, and it was really exciting music to skateboard and surf to. Um, when I first heard Anesthesia Pulling Teeth, uh, Cliff Burton's... Uh, incredible statement to music and to bass it was really just incredibly uplifting and powerful and in ballsy it was like you know here's this composition and i'm gonna slap you in the face with just you know the fire of this composition and it was very unique because not a lot of bass players at the time were doing stuff like that especially in that style of music so hats off to Anesthesia Pulling Teeth and Cliff Burton, my hero. And uh, what a special moment in music and a special moment in rock and metal. Following the initial success of the band's debut album, Kill 'Em All, they decided to head overseas to record the follow-up. Drummer Lars Ulrich explains why Denmark became the destination in February of 1984. We figured that if we recorded... Uh, the next album, which eventually became Ride the Lightning in Europe. We could stay over in Europe and tour longer. Uh, I was very big fans of a lot of uh, Rainbow Records that had been recorded at Sweet Silence Studios in Copenhagen. And um, Queen had done some stuff there in a very uh, infamous band, uh, big famous band, but infamous everywhere else, called Gasoline, had also recorded some stuff there. So it was a well-known studio, had great sounds. And Fleming Rasmussen was the house engineer, so we figured if we had him at the helm, then we could uh, go there and make a kick-ass record and stay in tour in Europe. One thing Metallica certainly wanted to avoid at all costs was the dreaded sophomore slump, which has plagued many a promising band since the beginning of time. Here's lead guitarist Kirk Hammett explaining the band's approach to following up Kill 'Em All. Well, when Ride the Lightning was finished, we knew it was completely on a different course than, than Kill 'Em All was. And, you know, it was very, very different from Kill 'Em All. And that was the idea. I mean, we wanted to, to show that we, we can do other things. We didn't have to uh, play at uh, 180 miles per hour to, to get, uh, get energy across. 
uh, we wanted to show that we could be play slow and heavy. Uh, and you know, for whom the bell tolls was uh, a good example of that. And uh, you know, it was just uh, it was just us growing as musicians and just looking around to see what else we can do that was new and different and original and that could help our sound. And yeah, you know, the momentum that had begun with Kill 'Em All. You know, uh, I I think uh, you know that momentum was just so strong that we felt that whatever we could do to like supplement that momentum, we did. And you know, uh, there are certain things, uh, certain attitudes that 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 were uh, that were taken that you know we need to really like really show that we we're more than a band that just goes fast. And we all pretty much had that attitude. A noticeable growth happened between the summer of 1983 and the winter of 1984 in terms of the band's songwriting, particularly the lyrics, which began to explore new territories at the time. As frontman James Hetfield explains it. As being the uh, band lyricist and, I guess, putting depth into the songs lyrically uh, and kind of putting a face to these songs, I guess I would say. Uh, yeah. I guess the, the the morphing between Kill 'Em All and Ride the Lightning was pretty su- significant. Uh, Kill 'Em All were songs, you know, from being you know eighteen and nineteen years old, uh, just to being about you know head banging, you wanting to tour the world and smash stuff. I mean, that was that was kind of all we knew at that point. Uh, Ride the Lightning reflected a little more on the world and how we were seeing it, uh, putting uh, myself into other people's shoes and situations and, and, and uh, you know, trying to explain what it might feel like. So it, it, had, started, it had started going from just a, you know, a thrasher, just destroy things mentality to, you know, going, going inside a little bit and you know, figuring out what life really is or what does it mean to me. Um, you know, obviously we loved the punk rock honesty and the, the, the punk rock attitude. Uh, we wanted to also add another dimension of, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say uh, intellectualizing stuff, but making, making it a lot more personal. As far as the overall sound of the album goes... A part of that credit goes to producer Fleming Rasmussen. And according to Kirk Hammett, he was a bigger influence than most would think. Well, Fleming helped us out a lot because he he was the first producer who actually worked with us. Uh, The producer on Kill Mall really didn't work with us too much. He wasn't very interactive. He didn't have a lot of of, uh, input. He just kind of like watched us record and said, yeah, that's a good take. No, that's not a good take. He, I mean, he barely even did did that. With Fleming, he got his good a good sound, you know, good drum sound, good guitar sound, good overall sound, great mix, and you know, he was the first one to really, really just work with us. And you know, I think that 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 that's how we we kind of uh, developed the sound, which was later known as the Metallica sound. One of the tracks that really jumps out from Ride the Lightning was Fade to Black, which for the first time found Metallica not trying to set world records for speed, according to James Hetfield. You know, the song Fade to Black on Ride the Lightning was was a pretty hard left turn 
uh, compared to a lot of the other bands that were our peers. Uh, you know, your, your Slayers and Anthraxes and things like that were not uh, doing doing ballads, um, if you consider that a ballad. To me, I just considered it a real uh, kind of somber and scary reminder that, uh, you know, wow, I feel I feel. I feel bad and I feel like, you know, there is an option to end this. Uh, I don't want to take it, but I think it related to a lot more people than people were thinking. Um, So I would say it helped us identify with a lot more people by being vulnerable. Um, The thrash metal and punk fans, I'm sure they related to it behind the scenes. Uh, You know, sitting there playing that record, maybe maybe playing that song just for themselves, not really allowing it to be a song that they shared with their friends, at least at that time. In the early 80s, it was a you know, a real tough guy kind of scene, and you didn't want to show any vulnerability. The next chapter for the band found them looking for ways to continue improving upon the momentum they had gained from their first two album cycles when they reconvened in the recording studio in the fall of 1985. As singer and rhythm guitarist James Hetfield describes that time. Definitely the next step for us. Uh, Every album we had learned and have learned uh, things from engineers, producers, uh, just, just the studio life. How do you set up a mic? How do you, where do you put it? What, you know, and... Oh, everyone does it this way. Let's try it this way. Uh, there were a lot of things that we were we were going for and trying differently. You know, new amplifiers at that point, and uh, it became more of a quest to get the ultimate guitar sound, the ultimate drum sound. It became more important to us sonically to be as powerful sounding as the song itself sounded. Uh, we felt that it, you know, by listening to other bands, we knew that. Gosh, you can have a great song and it doesn't sound great. Yeah, it gives it character, but we'd like both. Uh, and trying to get to the next level um, sonically. So learning all we could and putting it into Master of Puppets. If Metallica had taken a giant leap forward in terms of lyrical content between Kill em All and Ride the Lightning, the jump to the band's third album, Master of Puppets, cannot be overstated. James concurs. The lyric writing of Master of Puppets, uh, yeah, did go to another level. Uh, went, it went, uh, uh, yeah, addiction, religion, war, politics, manipulation, uh, lots of things that uh, you got some control over, but not complete control over at all. Uh, so learning to deal with those things, you know, uh, getting into our, uh, you know, in our mid twenties, uh, writing writing about things that we felt affected us as simple as that. And yeah, there's no doubt that the, you know, punk rock scene helped us deal with the, uh, you know, we're pissed off about this, 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 and this. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's definitely easier to, to pick out the faults of stuff and identify with others around that. It's definitely harder to write, you know, positive things that people, you know, want to identify with. That came later on. So, you know, Master Puppets was one of those uh, just telling it like it is. And, uh, you know, it's a growing, it was all these, all the lyrics and all the albums are just a growing up experience. So the Master Puppets stuff definitely started to, to, to address especially the addiction and uh, how it can uh, 
how it can run your life and manipulate you uh, ultimately. The album remains, to this day, one of the band's most cherished and celebrated within the hard rock and heavy metal communities. But it also earned a spot in an unlikely place of esteem, the United States Library of Congress. Here's drummer Lars Ulrich describing what it's like to have received that unexpected honor. When an honor like that is bestowed upon uh, Metallica, obviously it makes us feel appreciative, grateful, and thankful. Uh, you know, who would have thought in 1981, 82, when James and I started playing, you know, dirty, nasty, new wave of British heavy metal influenced music in a garage in the suburbs of Southern California, that that would lead to um, to to that kind of, of acknowledgement from, from the Library of Congress. Uh, it's just kind of mind-boggling and but it's 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 an awesome honor and it's uh it's an incredible um selection of peers to be part of so we're we're very um appreciative of that and um i guess it just goes to prove that uh even people that are outsiders and consider themselves to live in their own autonomous world uh can produce something that latches on to a, a large group of people. Metallica also further sharpened their playing skills in the live concert setting and, like their songwriting and production value, upped the ante once they landed an opening slot for Ozzy Osbourne's tour in the spring of 1986. James looks back fondly on that time in the band's maturation process. The Master of Puppets tour opening up for Ozzy Osbourne was huge for us. That was the oh, probably one of the biggest breaks that we had, especially in the 80s, to um, take it to the next level. Uh, Ozzy and crew were open to letting us have uh, our crosses up on the stage, you know, giving us, giving us uh, the opportunity to start uh, a thought about production, uh, allowing us to play a certain length. You know, we were we were treated very, very nicely on that tour compared to how uh, we've heard other bands got treated on other tours. So, you know, jumping up into the arenas was a huge move for us. We it's it's a you know it's one of those stepping stones that you do as a band, and. You think you're up there in front of these people. You can't believe that it's really happening. And you think you've made it. And that's it. And, you know, we went out on that tour and got to hang with Ozzy and learn a lot about the road. Uh, learn, you know, what to do, what not to do, and uh, and how to survive certain situations. And uh, learned a lot, obviously, about being on stage and presenting yourself and covering the whole stage. You know, uh, uh, making sure that the whole audience knows that you're doing it for them and and being inclusive of all, not just the front row. On September 27th, Metallica were on the road near Ljungby, Sweden, when their bus hit a patch of ice, causing it to slide off the road and flip over. As James, Lars, and Kirk emerged from the wreckage, they noticed their bandmate, bassist Cliff Burton, had been killed in the accident. Lars explains how the band handled the sudden and tragic loss of their friend. We were so shocked and stunned that we didn't know what hit us. And like most, I guess, kids in their early 20s uh, who get ambushed with that type of thing, uh, we jumped. 
into um, a bottle of, in this case, vodka for me and stayed in there for quite some time. Um, we, we, we just, we weren't mature enough or, um, or sort of seasoned in life enough to know how to deal with this other than just to sort of basically just almost hide behind the alcohol and, and compartmentalized it. So the next few months were very difficult and it was crazy, but we sort of, we just put the blinders on and started auditioning bass players. And we knew in our hearts that Cliff would be the first one to kick us in the ass and tell us to keep going if he could see us mope. And and so we, we, we there was no moping. We just kept going the best we knew how to. Following the death of their bandmate and friend, bassist Cliff Burton, Metallica were at a crossroads. Do they replace Cliff and continue on? Or do they pack it up and call it a career? Fortunately, the decision was made to press on. And the band hired Flotsam and Jetsam bassist Jason Newstead in the fall of 1986. According to lead guitarist Kirk Hammett, the band to this day still haven't completely worked out their grief. The question should be this. How much of the career was the band working out their grief through long musical passages? <laughs> uh, you know, to really be 100% honest, we're still working out our grief through these long musical passages. And, you know, we um, recently were speaking about Cliff Burton um, not that long ago. And, you know, we're all still very emotional about it. And I think, you know, we're still processing it. Even to this day, it's a hard thing to get over. And, you know, the usual what-if questions always always race through my mind. But, you know, it's just one of those things. We're working through it still. At least I am. Metallica wrapped up their touring cycle for Master of Puppets and hit the recording studio in January of 1988 to begin work on their fourth album, And Justice for All. A collection of songs, many of them complex arrangements, and clocking in at well over five minutes in length. Despite its tendency to be long-winded, as Kirk Hammett just alluded to, it remains a fan favorite. The album opens with Blackened. Ever wondered how Metallica achieved the backwards guitar sounds that comprised the first minute of the song? Lead guitarist Kirk Hammett explains. Okay, that was that idea was James's idea, and what had happened was he uh, he recorded some uh, guitar harmonies on a, a Fostex machine, and on those Fostex machines, those old Fostex machines, they were straight to cassette, and you, what you were able to do is you were able to like. Record something on side one, then turn it over, fast forward it all the way to the end of side two, then rewind it a little bit and hear the exact same thing you recorded, but in reverse. And that's how that part came about. He was just curious on what it sounded like in reverse and, and liked it enough that, you know... It ended uh, ended up being the intro to the album. Something else that's interesting about And Justice for All was the continued maturation of James Hetfield's vocal approach. I guess the jump from Master Puppets to And Justice for All, uh, voice-wise, a little a little bit noticeable, I guess. Uh, you know, I don't really know how or why uh, over time, you know, voices change like that, and you know, I was not intentionally trying to sound like anything but 
bet, but better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, to this day, and I'm sure obviously in justice for all period, we were still looking for a singer, you know, some guy who could actually sing and I'm just filling in until then. And obviously it's, it's become, uh, uh, a thing that I love doing, um, but it was not my first choice, you know. So singing and playing guitar, uh, it's 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 turned into one. It's turned into one thing now. So um, sometimes the vocals suffer when I'm playing guitar in a certain spot. Sometimes the guitar suffers when I'm singing in a certain spot. But it is something that I love doing both of. Um, so as far as voice changing and getting better, that's all I wanted to do was get better, uh, not trying to sing a certain way. There has always been singers in my life that I've admired and, uh, uh, you know, Ronnie James Dio obviously being one of them and I, I'm nowhere near that, but, uh, he, uh, you know, he's still a goal to shoot for, I'd say. Continuing the tradition that Metallica had begun on their debut album, another instrumental was included on Injustice for All, and the late great Cliff Burton had a heavy hand in its construction, according to James. Yes, the song To Live Is To Die on Injustice for All, certainly a, uh, ooh, a nodding of the head to Cliff Burton, a bowing of the head, a, uh, you know, sending a, sending a, uh, Gosh, sending our love to him through that song. Um, yeah, we had found we had found uh, after Cliff's passing, we had found uh, a uh, a folder of sorts that had some different uh, lyrics and things, just jotting downs and uh, one liners and things from him that you know we kind of all had those on the road, and I just picked that out. I think it was actually lyrics from something else, but it was so fitting, and it was Cliff's. So, yes, that is my voice on there, and it was hard not to uh, just lose it during the recording of that. And uh, um, it definitely took quite a few takes, but uh, I love the song, and I love uh, the fact that, obviously, Cliff... It still shines on through us. Arguably the biggest hit on the album was the fourth track, a song simply entitled One. Prior to this point, Metallica had never shown an interest in shooting and releasing any music videos for their songs. That all changed in 1988, as One became the band's introduction to the world of music videos. Here's how drummer Lars Ulrich remembers it. Well, I feel that the One video was sort of an extension of the creative process. We we did it completely on our own terms, and... Um, I mean, you say a lot of silly things when you're 19 years old and, you know, when you make rules or when you, you know, do stuff like that, then you reserve the right to change them, I guess, as you go along. Uh, so, you know, when the idea for the one video came up, we thought it was so groundbreaking, so unique and so sort of authentic to who we were that we didn't sit there and question the validity of it in a bigger context. We were just waiting for, you know, the video medium to be a creative outlet like making records had been. And we felt that if we steered it the right way that we could, um, that we could make videos that were meaningful and, and had some sort of substance to them. It remains one of the most popular songs the band have ever written, recorded, and played live. The new decade would usher in a new philosophy for Metallica in terms of songwriting. As Lars explains it, after the Injustice for All album of making four primarily thrashy albums with a lot of fast and very progressive stuff, we felt 
over the course of the Injustice for All tour, which we were on the road for almost two years supporting, that we had reached kind of the end of that tangent of Metallica, that, that there was really nothing more to do or say. Um, and I think we've always had a, a bit of a fear of repetition and a bit of fear of, of not challenging ourselves enough. So when we came off the road after the Justice Tour, we, we basically said, okay, we're going to try something completely different. And James and I sat down in the summer of 1990, basically uh, at my house and challenged ourselves to write shorter, simpler songs. That was the, the battle cry. But it wasn't, let's write shorter, simpler songs, comma, and hope to get them on the radio and become successful. It was just, let's write shorter, simpler songs that may be easier to play in a live situation that will connect with a, uh, an audience in, in, in a live situation in a more physical way, trying to write some stuff that was a little more physical, you know, about attitude and bounce and groove and so on, rather than all these super intellectual, cerebral exercises in math metal that some of those songs uh, like especially on the Injustice for All had become. The band entered the one-on-one -on -one recording studios in Los Angeles, California in October of 1990 and would collaborate for the first time with producer Bob Rock, who had cut his teeth on albums like The Cult's Sonic Temple, Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood, and Loverboy's Big Ones. James' recollection of the new relationship and the band's new direction. The Black Album, The Snake, The Don't Tread on Me, the, ugh, the Metallica, Metallica, Metallica album, I guess, as it's called. You know, most people call it the Black Album. Uh, yeah, a lot, my, a lot more diverse on this record, uh, I would say, you know, he heavier, slower stuff. Uh, a lot more moody, moody things here and there, a lot more production, a lot more use of a producer, uh, instruments, sonic coloring, um, you know, setting moods, uh, ethereal parts. Um, I think really when we were in the studio with Bob Rock, uh, his his uh, knowledge of production was so helpful for us in understanding what we, how, how much we could do in there. Um, he was, is a gear junkie. He has tons of, he had brought tons of gear in and Kirk and I, I know we just sit there for hours and hours playing with all the different amps and guitars and things that he had pedals and weird, weird things. We didn't even know what they were. So we had a lot of fun on that record, making it, uh, coming up with interesting sounds. Uh, there was definitely no, no intention to change an audience base at all. It's just, uh, you know, Metallica as artists, expanding and trying the next right and good thing. Kirk remembers the experience as being a challenging one. Yes, I remember the recording process for the Black Album being pretty challenging and pretty long-winded long because we were sitting on some really, really great material and we really wanted to take our time to make sure that we crafted the album that we wanted to make which was a, a really, really great-sounding, really live, big, cavernous kind of recording. And, you know, to do that, it took time. And, you know, to get the right sounds that we wanted to get for that album, took time. And to get the performances that we wanted to, to get, it took time. 
But at the end of it, the end result was way worth it. Comparing Bob Rock to the band's last producer, Fleming Rasmussen, Lars echoes James and Kirk's sentiments in regards to the overall environment. We had never been in a recording environment where we were being challenged at the level that Bob Rock challenged it. With Fleming, we were more... Fleming was more of an engineer who helped execute uh, James and I's visions. And so he, he sort of helped facilitate what we're after. Bob challenged us and threw ideas at us that we had never considered. And we were very limited in our outlook and our scope at the time. And we were kind of uh, taken aback by some of his suggestions. So it wasn't so much that the, uh, it wasn't so much about the meticulousness and all of that. There was a lot of time spent kind of trying to figure out how comfortable we were with some of the stuff that he was doing and, and getting to a place where we felt that we were all in sync. Around this same time, a band out of Seattle called Nirvana were releasing an album of their own entitled Nevermind, a sound that captured the hearts of many rock music fans who then began to gravitate away from the heavy metal approach and embrace a more minimalistic, almost punk rock ethic. Here's James on why that trend didn't slow Metallica. You know, talking about grunge uh, coming onto the scene, you know, in our in our career, all the way up to now, thirty five years, we've we've seen lots of musics get popular and not as popular, and you know, um, I don't, I don't, I know that Metallica does not uh, get influenced by trends, and maybe that's maybe that's not entirely true. That I'd say uh, when there's a certain trend out there, it's it's easier to not do it <laughs> if we're aware of it uh we're we are not followers of trends uh at all and never have been so any other music that comes along um you know makes us maybe a little more proud to be what we are and 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 even try harder or shine shine brighter in whatever music we come up with um but going through different different scenes doesn't doesn't affect us except uh, to make us a little more confident in what we do. Was Lars surprised at all by the fans' reaction of the Black Album and its wide variety of textures and soundscapes? Not really. I mean, it's not a question that came up much when we were recording it. Uh, it's really more questions that would come up um, when you're doing interviews and you sort of sit and analyze it and intellectualize it afterwards in, in conversation with press around the world uh, when we were writing songs uh, up at my house in Berkeley uh, for the Black Album James and I he uh, played me um, a, a kind of a very very early rough version of just the verses from Nothing Else Matters and I'd never heard anything like that come out of him and I was so uh, taken by it and felt so swept up in it that I said, listen, we have to turn this into a song and let's put some choruses in and let's you know, put some solos in and make it Metallica. But he was initially a little reluctant um, but uh, because he felt it was kind of like more a private, kind of his thing. But I told him that it was something that had to be shared with the world and he, um, he eventually um, agreed and 
we ended up sharing it with the world. Metallica's fifth studio album, self-titled, was released in August of 1991 and would go on to become the 10th best-selling album in U.S. history. Metallica spent nearly three years on the road supporting their self-titled album. Their explosion in popularity was reflected not only in sales figures, but also the size of the crowds at their shows, many of them in arenas and stadiums. By the end of the cycle, James, Lars, Kirk, and Jason were ready to take a much-needed breather. Fast forward to early 1995 in the very early stages of what would become Metallica's next batch of songs and an album called Load, an appropriate title given the massive amount of writing they had done in their time away, particularly James, who had become prolific and proficient in his talent as a riff writer. Yeah, Load and Reload, a lot of riffs. And, you know, there's a lot of riffs for every album, uh, except maybe the earlier ones. Um you know, with longer time in between. I love creating and I can't stop writing. Uh, you sit down and you just start playing and all of a sudden there's a riff. Um, so there are obviously different ways of, of memorizing them or recording them. Uh, you know, the, we've got, you know, tapes and tapes of, of riffs that weren't used or might never ever be used. But the cream rises to the top no matter what kind of format you have it in. And, you know, the best riffs get picked out. And, um, um, yeah, no, no shortage of riffs. Because of the sheer volume of worthy material coming from the band's principal songwriters, a decision had to be made as to whether or not to record and release it all at once or split it up into two separate albums. James recalls that decision-making process. Yes, that, uh, that was... Um, a lot of music, <laughs> a whole lot of music. And, uh, yeah, two albums. I mean, it was going to be one. It was going to be one record, uh, you know, before it was called Load. Uh, these were a bunch of songs that we liked, and we kept working on them, working on them. And, boy, there was, you know, 30-plus songs, 40-something song. I mean, we had a lot, a lot of songs. And at that point, you know, we had honed our craft to, to be able to make all these songs really good. And what do you do with all these really good songs? You, you can't put them onto one record, so we decided to split them up. And um, I, I'd say that was a super challenging thing for me as a lyricist to come up with that many lyrics. And um, I'm, I'm kind of glad that it's two records. It gave me time to to hone in and make uh, the reload stuff uh, a little stronger than it was. Uh, but it was intended to be one record, uh, but eventually became split because there was so there was so much material. Metallica's sixth studio album was released on June 4th of 1996. 14 songs, clocking in at nearly 80 minutes in length. Aside from the music, the album's artwork created some conversation among the band's most diehard fans who noticed the four members were sporting a new image, short haircuts, and suits. According to Lars, Metallica weren't aware that their new look would spark such a reaction. We were not, no. I mean, we never are aware of how anything we do has an impact on anybody. And I'd like to say that that's a good thing because we don't sit there and particularly um, overanalyze or, I guess, suffer the consequences. You know, it's... it's uh, I guess ultimately there's a purity to what we do and basically all of these things are out of come out of a creative passion and a creative uh, curiosity um, so from 1991 to 1996 
uh, in the five-year gap from the release of the Black Album to the release of the Load record, all four members of Metallica at various points, not at the same time, but at various points in that five-year span had haircuts. It was not planned that way. It was not part of a plan or anything. It was just something that happened. So when we showed up again after being off the radar for a few years, everybody thought that we had gotten a four-for-one deal at the local barber shop. But I can assure you that was not the case. And we just, again, like I've said a couple times when we've talked about some of the stuff, we just wanted to challenge ourselves creatively. And our um, curiosity has always taken us in many, many unusual directions, and I'm always super proud of that. The material found on Load and the follow-up a year later, Reload, found the band once again exploring some new songwriting philosophies. James Hetfield explains. Yeah, Load and Reload. Uh, I don't know if it's a little more hard rock approach, uh, a little more groove-oriented, I guess, you know, obviously less thrashy, a little more thought out. I think, uh, you know, for me, not an optimal uh, process there, having that many songs and uh, trying to focus on that many at once. Um, I would rather, you know, have eight songs that were totally honed in on and make them as best as possible. So it was challenging for me, lyrically, musically, to stretch out ideas into, you know, 30-plus songs. Um, So, you know, that was yet another experience in the Metallica uh, journey. Um, And that's what we tried. And we did it that way, and and it came out exactly how it was supposed to be. Probably the biggest proponent of Metallica's new style was lead guitarist Kirk Hammett. You know, I I really liked uh, where we were going with load and reload. It was a bit drastic and a bit abrupt at the time as far as, you know, the change of direction, but I liked the change of direction. And, you know, the songs suggested a more melodic kind of playing, a more structured kind of playing, and... um and that's what I I, I I went for. They they also kind of like were a little bit more bluesy because I was heavily into my blues phase during the '90s. So I mean, there's there's definitely like a blues element to a lot of the the guitar solos I played on Load and Reload for sure. For an outsider's perspective on how Load and Reload fit with the Metallica brand, here's current bassist Robert Trujillo on his initial impression of the albums. With Load and Reload, um, I kind of had lost, uh, I I mean, I lost track of Metallica a little bit at that time. I was so engulfed in the Ozzy universe and writing and preparing music for Ozzy and and being on the road. So there was a lot going on at that time for me. So I didn't really get a chance to connect with Load and Reload. Um, And some of the stuff that I heard was was different very different so it it was it was difficult for me to make a direct connection to those to those songs on that record i didn't really connect with load and reload until i actually joined the band and had to learn some of that back catalog and i actually thought a lot of it was cool you know it was different but it was cool and uh again great songwriting um but very different than what I had been used to uh, in the earlier recordings. 
but still respectable, you know. Metallica's seventh studio album, Reload, was released on November 18th of 1997. 13 songs and, like its predecessor, reaching nearly 80 minutes in length. Following another lengthy touring cycle for Load and Reload, Metallica took a break from writing and recording new original music and instead hit the studio in the fall of 1998 to record a series of covers chosen by the members of the band. Garage Inc. was released on November 23rd of 1998. Two discs, the first featuring newly recorded cover tunes and the second a re-release of various covers the band had recorded between 1984 and 1995. A total of 11 new renditions of some old favorites hit stores and the airwaves. The band have a long and storied history of covering others' material, both in the recording studio and in the live show. According to singer and rhythm guitarist James Hetfield, the practice actually helps Metallica discover new and uncharted territories through the works of artists each member happens to respect and admire. Metallica loves doing covers. Uh, it's been in our makeup from day one, you know. We were playing Diamond Head songs, Blitzkrieg, uh, Savage, Sweet Savage, uh, lots of uh, new wave of British metal uh, bands, songs that uh, we would cover here in the States. People had no clue that they weren't our songs, uh, but they were songs that we loved and they helped develop our style. Um, you know, what, gosh, I was asked the question, what... Uh, what band or song Metallica hasn't covered but would like to? I have no clue. Uh, you know, we all have we all have our favorite bands, and you know, does a song fit into Metallica? Uh, most of the songs that we've covered have a history with us somehow. Um, I guess we have done a thing. You know, Thin Lizzy's a band that we've we've loved forever. We did you know Whiskey in the Jar. Technically, it's their version of a traditional uh, Celtic. Uh, song, but um, I would say, I don't know, maybe a band like UFO. That's a band that I know uh, guitar-wise, Kirk and I really, really love, and so maybe that's the next one. Who knows? On the subject of covering the music of UFO, lead guitarist Kirk Hammett isn't so ready and willing, and explains why. You know, I'm such a huge UFO fan that I see all that stuff as sacred, so I don't know if I would really enjoy covering UFO. That's why I don't really push for it too much. Because, you know, there's something that happens when you cover a song. It becomes less sacred, at least to me. Current bassist Robert Trujillo wants to take Metallica's cover tunes in a new and unexpected direction. One song that I think would be great for Metallica to cover, uh, I, I would have to be funky. Uh, there's a song by the Isley Brothers, and everybody's gonna th every, all the Metallica fans are going to think I'm crazy, but there's a song called Climbing Up the Ladder, and it's got a great riff and a great hook, and I think that James Hetfield's voice would be perfect for it. And I think that the groove in the pocket is right there, and it's solid. So you probably have never heard the songs out the, this song out there, but Climbing Up the Ladder is super funky. I think there is a, a thrash metal version of this song ready to be created and made at some point in life by Metallica. Let's do it. The band wrapped up the decade of the 1990s with a series of concerts in which they paired some of their back catalog with the San Francisco Symphony, led by Michael Kamen. Recorded in April of 1999 and released that November, S&M was a statement that, in fact, Metallica were becoming an extremely versatile band, a band that would no longer allow anyone to pigeonhole them 
as any one specific entity. In a decade that found the band expanding their horizons and their fan base, it remains one of the band's most notable achievements, musically speaking. The front half of the 2000s nearly resulted in the demise of the band. Following a grueling decade of album cycles and tours in which Metallica had reached new heights and grown their fan base exponentially, a series of events led to some negative publicity for the group, a situation they had been, up to that point, impervious to. First, the Napster situation, which made more than a few headlines, and a court case which drove a wedge in between artists and some of the record-buying public. Next, just as Metallica were set to hit the studio to begin work on a new album, the departure of bassist Jason Newstead after over 14 years of service. Also around this time, filmmakers Joel Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky began to document the band's day-to-day -day operation. What happened next was as close to Metallica breaking up as we've ever seen. On July 19th of 2001, frontman James Hetfield checked himself into rehab to treat his alcoholism and other addictions. The band were in flux during this time. Members have gone on record as saying they didn't know whether or not James would return, and the band could continue. Fortunately, rehab was a success, and James returned to the band, who then hit the studio to begin work on their next album. During the recording process of what would ultimately become Metallica's eighth studio album, Saint Anger, producer Bob Rock assumed the role of bassist and appears on all 11 of the album's tracks. In February of 2003, the band ran through a series of auditions for a new bassist and ultimately chose former Ozzy and Suicidal Tendencies bassist Robert Trujillo, who was asked to learn all the back catalog and the new material, which had already been recorded, which led to a somewhat uncomfortable situation for the new guy. It's interesting. I remember with St. Anger, um, I think it was the second day of the audition, um, James and Lars came in the control room and they they said, hey, uh, can you throw a track on, um, I think the, the, the song would have actually possibly been St. Anger. I don't remember exactly, but I think it was the song St. Anger. And they wanted me to lay a bass track and Bob had already laid bass on this song. And I remember they left the room, they went for lunch or whatever, and I'm sitting in there with Bob. And he's the producer, so I said, okay, so... I was handed a bass and, and I looked at him. I said, you know, so, you know, what should I do? And he didn't say much. And then they rolled, rolled the track and I started recording. And then when I was done, I, I felt there was something kind of cool that I had laid. And I looked at, to him for a reaction and he, he looked frustrated, not because he didn't like what he heard. It's because he had already cut bass on the track. And he was like, I don't know. I already recorded on the song, you know, so I think he had taken it a little bit personal that they wanted um, me to lay a track on there. And I felt a bit confused because here I am with the producer, but he's also the bass player, and they want me to cut a bass track on this song that, that he'd already recorded on. So it was a bit of a cluster um, at the time. So that was my memory of, of being in the studio at that moment with Bob Rock and, uh, and Saint Anger. The album was released on June 5th of 2003 and was not generally met with favorable reviews, according to frontman James Hetfield, who describes where his head was at when writing the songs that comprise the album. Saint Anger. Ouch. Yeah, that's hard. That's an angry album. That is one friggin' angry album, I must say. Sonically, lyrically, uh, and riff-wise, really, really angry, really aggressive, really, uh, I'd say, punishing, uh, uh, relentless, the album um, was exactly 
what we were feeling at the time. I mean, especially me at that point, you know, being, you know, fresh out of rehab and kind of trying to figure life out and what was it all about and can we even get along and, uh, you know, going through lots of stuff. Obviously, you can see it in the uh, uh, Some Kind of Monster movie. But I tell you, St. Anger is exactly where we were at that time. And uh, I... I, I have a hard time when people say uh, that they don't like it and it's it's difficult to listen to. I get that. I know some of the instruments aren't the easiest to listen to, but man, there is such there is such a relentlessness in that album. Uh, in itself, I think it it is it's a statement. It's a statement, and it might not be a song you're gonna s- sit there and maybe. Uh, I don't know, listen to or hear on the, on the, on the, on the radio. <laughs> Cause this stuff is, is, it's brutal. And uh, I'm glad we did it and it served its purpose. Drummer Lars Ulrich's drum songs in particular received scathing words of disapproval. His reaction to the fans early reaction to St. Anger. It's very little that Metallica has done that I think needs that kind of, uh, I, I guess I would almost use the word defending, um, you know, we can hold our heads up high after 35 years and everything that we've done happened for a reason. It was a momentary thing, impulsive. We've always been true to the moment and every one of those records is part of our journey. And if St. Anger didn't sound like St. Anger, then something else probably wouldn't have happened. So. Uh, to me, most of those kind of what-if questions are, are, are kind of a waste of time. And how did the newest member of the band adjust to his new surroundings and new batch of songs? With Saint Anger, um, when I first joined the band, which was the album that I first joined the band on, the bass tracks had already been recorded by Bob Rock, and uh, it was a very different album. Uh, I, I think it was a challenge for me because at the time, the band hadn't really played those songs even amongst themselves. You know, a lot of that stuff was, I think, um, created in a different atmosphere in the studio. So I had the task of learning over, at the time it would have been over 22 years of music back catalog, and then 12 plus songs from St. Anger. And that was a little bit crazy. I had to actually create charts for the music and, um, and everything was happening all at once. So it was kind of being in a whirlwind or like in the, in the rinse cycle of a, of a washing machine. I just remember being uh, really kind of stressed out and um, caught in the middle of it all. And, and everything that happens in the Metallica universe is kind of a hundred times crazier than you would ever imagine between the press and the, um, you know, the, the tour cycle and everything that's happening and then just the, the, the changing of the set lists. You never know what you're going to play. So St. Anger, I just remember it being wild music at a wild time, and it's a bit of a blur for me. I actually have more fun playing it now than I did back then. I think uh, whenever we bust out a St. Anger song, it, it, it actually feels better, grooves better, and it sounds better than I think than it did back then. In addition to a lot of down-tuned guitar sounds and a complete lack of guitar solos, James Hetfield's unorthodox vocal approach on many of the songs was also called into question. I think at that time we were into a very, very honed-in, punishing sound. So yeah, there are times on that record where uh, 
you know, the voice does sound really different. People weren't used to that. People want want to hear how the vocals were before and whatnot. And, you know, I tell you, um, if you're going to be an artist and try new things, you got to be ready to, to catch some hell from people because they, they like you the way they like you. And I totally get that. Uh, and as an artist, we, we, we got to explore, we got to move on. We got to try things or else, you know, why, why be an artist? Why be listening? You know, why write music for other people? This is for us. Uh, and that is that is the selfish truth of Metallica. Despite the negative feedback the band had received and continued to, the album has sold 6 million copies worldwide and debuted at the top of the sales charts in 14 different countries upon its release. One thing longtime fans of Metallica could agree on regarding St. Anger was the fact that the album's artwork was pretty badass and was thanks to an old friend of the band, according to drummer Lars Ulrich. Plus it showed up, I believe, in... The mid-80s, there was a magazine called Thrasher Magazine, and he was very, uh, had a very high profile on the skate scene at that time. Hetfield and Hammond, especially Hetfield, were heavy skaters. Cliff and I, not so much. But he was a big presence in that skate-slash-punk-slash-independent world in the mid-80s. And he did the, uh, I guess what's called the Damage Ink Skull, which showed up. I guess on the tour book or some t-shirts of Metallica's over the summer of 1986 and he's been a uh, very significant presence in our history ever since. The front half of the 2000s threw just about as much adversity at the band as it could handle. A contentious court case involving file sharing, a member change, a rehab stint, and an album that was panned by many fans and critics nearly culminated in the end of Metallica. But they survived and into the back half of the decade, had already shown an eagerness to right the ship and get back to basics in terms of songwriting. While out on the Madly in Anger with the World tour, the band had logged several hours of preset jams, which yielded hundreds of riff ideas, chord progressions, and bass lines. Over the course of roughly three years, between February of 2004 and March of 2007, Metallica had zeroed in on a sound that felt at least inspired by some of the classic albums they had written and recorded 20-plus years prior. They hit the recording studio with a new producer, Rick Rubin. A familiar name if you're a fan of bands like Green Day, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Beastie Boys, even Johnny Cash. He would help encourage Metallica to embrace their past, rather than shy away because they had already been there, done that, as drummer Lars Ulrich explains. That particular record was a result of Rick Rubin encouraging us to be comfortable with revisiting certain parts of our past, nothing more, nothing less. It wasn't like somebody was holding us back from going down that path again, and then all of a sudden we were allowed to by mom or dad or the record company or the neighbor down the street. There wasn't anything like that. It was just Rick Rubin encouraged us to embrace certain elements of the past, and the time was right. Like any other Metallica record, it was a a process to make the record, and I'm proud of that time uh, and that 
place. And, you know, I guess I look at all these Metallica records basically as a photograph of a particular time period. Considering all they had been through over the previous seven years, the writing and recording process felt like a fresh start, according to singer and rhythm guitarist James Hetfield. Yes, the Death Magnetic album uh, after St. Anger, after some kind of monster, uh, you know, Arf obviously went through a lot of stuff in those those times. Um, I remember our, our uh, life coach at that time saying... You know, all this work you're doing right now is not for saying anger. It's for the next one. And the next one was Death Magnetic. And it certainly was. A lot of uh, brotherhood, a lot of caring again, a lot of uh, realizations, a lot of uh, honesty, a lot of opening up to each other, vulnerability helped us get to that place. And Death Magnetic uh, was a celebration of, uh, you know, our... Gosh, our newfound uh, love for each other and what we do. Um, getting Rick Rubin in there and getting a young feel going again in the band and feeling like we have something to say. Uh, awesome, awesome. Love the record. Uh, it's in your face. There's a lot of great lyrics, great riffs, great drumming, great solos. Uh it's nice to have the solos back, obviously, after St. Anger. Uh, but really, really, really proud of that record. Uh, artwork as well. The tour was a blast. Um, lots of visuals and, uh, uh, you know, lots of fun. These sessions also became the first in which bassist Robert Trujillo, who had joined the band roughly four years before, was allowed to contribute to the creative process. With Death Magnetic, um, I remember just being excited about being able to finally record with the band and create creatively collaborate with, with the guys. But at the same time, during that whole time period, we had kids born. I mean, there were five kids born during that writing cycle and uh, the recording of that album. So it was a bit crazy. Um, I had probably more ideas, uh, not prepared, but um, that actually were included in the songwriting on Death Magnetic. So it was a bit more collaborative than um, than Hardwired. Um, so that was pretty special in itself. The, uh, songs like The Day That Never Comes or Suicide and Redemption, um, All Nightmare Long, you know, I feel that there's a chunk of me in there. And um, it was an exciting time to take off on this creative journey with with uh, my bandmates. Um, I I feel Death Magnetic is is a very special album, and I feel that it's the first official journey that I've taken been able to take with the band. And Hardwired to Self Destruct is the second journey, and and there'll be more. And that's what's exciting to me, especially having Greg Fiddleman, who engineered. Death Magnetic and Rick Rubin, who I came in with pretty much on on, on that record, sort of a new beginning, um, but uh, was the producer. But having Greg Fiddleman now as the producer um, on Hardwired and having him being a part of this uh, sonic, you know, powerful wall of sound is exciting to me for the future. Um, but Death Magnetic was definitely special in a lot of ways, a lot of creative ways, and it just represents a time and a tour that uh, sort of set me off with the band and uh, 
and uh, it was very exciting. Metallica's ninth studio album, Death Magnetic, was released on September 12th of 2008. The album is a polar opposite of St. Anger in many ways. The instrumentation, no question. The production, most definitely. But also the sound of James Hetfield's vocals, which had veered hard left on the band's previous album. Hetfield reveals the inspiration behind his return to form. Well, yeah, Death Magnetic, I think vocally when uh, we approached it, or I approached it, uh, you know, having uh, Rick Rubin along board, he was very involved uh, in the vocals, very involved in the lyric writing or wanting to know what was going on, where I was, how he can improve it. And, you know, I found that a test for myself. Uh, and at the end of the day, knowing that, you know, okay, yes, I'm an artist and I want to do it this way because this is what I feel. This is what feels right. I'm going to listen. And, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it's if it's going to improve things, that's why we're doing this. That's why there's a collaboration. And uh, so uh, allowing him into that world was helpful. And I did learn a lot of stuff from him. And he's got a lot of knowledge. And he's been around uh, doing lots of great albums, uh, great records, great music with people. So it was uh, great to be able to, to tap into what, what he has, what his experiences have been. Um, I would say the approach, uh, on death magnetic was, was pretty dry and stark and not a lot of harmonies, not a lot of fluff. It was, here's the voice, here's the one voice and here it is. And that was a little challenging for me. I like, you know, I'm, I'm the melody guy. I love harmony. I like trying to build a lot of stuff, but I would say, you know, that album is, is, is uh, you know dry and in your face vocally as uh, we had done up to that point. As far as working alongside the band's architect of sorts in the studio, newcomer Robert Trujillo found the experience a bit intimidating at times. Yes, with Death Magnetic, there was definitely um, a creative journey that I would say, well, a respectful journey that the guys brought me in and really listened to me, and uh, and maybe there was respect from the years past with, with, you know, other bands and artists that I work with. Um, I felt that, uh, that just to be able to sit there and actually show James Hetfield some of my ideas and it's, it, it's, it's, it's a bit nerve wracking and, and intimidating because he's not always the most patient when he's learning something, especially if it's a little bit more technical, but, uh, in the end when he grasps it and he makes it his own or brings his touch to it, it becomes very powerful and rewarding, but getting there is a little bit of a challenge, and that was one of the things I remember from some of the some of the parts that I had prepared and that I had to show him. You know, it's not always easy, um, but once once he gets it and everybody's kind of in the groove in the pocket of a part that you come up with, it, it gets it turns into an exciting moment. But the lead-up is a little bit intimidating, I must say. <laughs> Another nod to the band's past was the inclusion of only 10 songs on Death Magnetic, the vast majority of which clock in at 7 minutes in length or more. Yet another call to Metallica's history was answered in a song called Suicide and Redemption, a nearly 10-minute long instrumental, which the band hadn't put on a record since 1988's And Justice for All. Fans also noticed a third installment of James Hetfield's The Unforgiven was a part of the album. Was it always meant to be a trilogy? James answers. No, it was a, a oct- octilogy, <laughs> Octi- octagonatilogy. I don't know. Yeah, there's going to be eight of them. 
Uh, I have no clue. You know, when we write, we write. Uh, when I when I think back, yeah, Unforgiven. They're all three different viewpoints. Uh, you know, the first one is a little blaming. The second one is complete confusion and questioning. And the third one is more realization of, uh, I haven't forgiven myself. How can I do that for others? Uh, so I think the story has been told pretty much and it, uh, uh, you know, it, it comes from within, it comes from us all and it's in there. If we know it's there as maybe the, uh, answer to that trilogy, but, there doesn't need to be any more, I don't think. Um, the, the story wasn't done being told, and I think it's, it's, it's done on Death Magnetic finally. In the years between Death Magnetic and the band's 10th studio album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, Metallica achieved and received a number of notable accolades. First, in regards to Death Magnetic, they became the first band in the history of the Billboard 200 to debut at number one on five consecutive albums. Next, they were nominated and eventually inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in April of 2009. The following year, Metallica did a series of tour dates reuniting the Big Four, which included Slayer, Anthrax, and former lead guitarist Dave Mustaine's band, Megadeth. In 2011, a collaboration with Velvet Underground legend Lou Reed, which resulted in an album entitled Lulu. The band also celebrated its 30th anniversary that year. In 2012, the launch of their own music festival, Orion Music and More. In 2013, Metallica starred in its own 3D concert film entitled Through the Never. They also played a show in Antarctica late that year, the seventh and final continent that hadn't yet been conquered. More touring in 2014 before finally returning to Metallica HQ in May of 2015 to begin work on a new album. Here's drummer Lars Ulrich on how the creative process has changed over the years and may have affected the way the music has evolved. I'd say the process actually gets not necessarily easier because... uh, we have more options and we're slightly more seasoned in what we're doing now. So uh, every time we do something, we can do a lot more with it than we used to. Uh, so sometimes I wish we were a little more instinctive. Um, like back in the day, I don't remember having as many options as we do now. But uh, we have a lot of ideas, a lot of ideas. Uh, there's no shortage of material. So... I think we, we sort of find safety in the fact that we know that if one thing's not working, then there's another 900 ideas hovering just around the corner. Hardwired to Self-Destruct was released on November 18th of 2016, the first to be put out on the band's new independent Blackened Recordings label. Early reviews suggested that Metallica were continuing to channel their back catalog in terms of tempo and aggression. Some even suggested it may have been inspired by the earliest Metallica album. Does lead guitarist Kirk Hammett concur? Well, I would say the the, the working theme was to write something that had elements of kill em all to it, but, you know, after after all is said and done, it really sounds like the next album after Death Magnetic. Lars Ulrich suggests a reason they may indeed have been inspired by the debut album. When we started writing the new album a couple years ago, we had just played a, an Orion show, uh, a surprise Orion appearance at a festival where we played Kill Em All in its entirety. I think it was like the 30th anniversary. So um, Kill Em All was sort of in our blood a little bit that summer. Uh, I don't know if there's a direct correlation, 
I think that Kill 'Em All just has some simpler songs that are not quite as progressive as some of the stuff of the subsequent records. And that's ultimately where the hardwired stuff ended up. So I think it's easier to maybe draw a correlation. I, I can't say that Kill 'Em All was an obvious influence. There may have been parts of it that sort of seep through the unconsciousness, but, um, and maybe, like I said, the, you know, the fact that we sort of did the reissue, I guess, earlier this year for Kill 'Em All and that we played Kill 'Em All its entirety a couple years ago may have something slightly subconscious to do about it, but certainly not a, a major reason. As far as lyrics are concerned, a wide variety of topics are being addressed on the new album, according to singer and rhythm guitarist James Hetfield. Yeah, I guess a cynical approach to the world of, you know, yeah, we're fucked, but we're not really fucked, you know. Uh, I have a faith in man. Uh, man has been around for a while. Is it still time for us? Who knows? Just just throwing out the question that, you know, man is a little blip on the history of the universe. And uh, do we think we know what we're doing? Do Who do we think we are? All that kind of stuff. Um, you know, going from, uh, uh, you know, not trusting each other to uh, problems that are happening with, uh, you know, the youth, uh, uh, I would also say that, you know, the, the convenience versus, uh, oh, I guess, de- uh, dependence on, uh, technology and machinery has, uh, been approached in this and, uh, you know, spit out the bone. Yeah. Just a few questions that are on my mind, especially as a, uh, uh, an adult, 50 year old adult, or almost adult, um, <laughs> who's got kids and seeing this world coming and feeling like, oh, my dad, oh, my God, uh, this 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 world is doomed without me, you know. <laughs> but then I see my kids and I see what cool cool things they've got on their mind and how open and, and uh, uh, accepting of a lot of things they are. And I really do have faith in mankind at the end of the day. Metallica were also inspired to write a song in dedication to Motorhead frontman, the late, great Lemmy Kilmister, who had passed away during the writing of the album. James explains Lemmy's presence on the song Murder One. Obviously, uh, Lemmy Kilmister of Motorhead has been a huge influence on me, on this band. You know, without him, we wouldn't be around. Uh, I know that for a fact. Um, uh, you know, Lars traveling around, following them, and just becoming the Uber fan and learning a lot from them. Them taking him under their wing. Um, you know, we've 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 learned a lot from that. We've taken people under our wing out on the road and and made lots of really cool relationships out there and helped people along. Um, Lemmy was quite a character, and I tell you, he. It was so inspirational, uh, like a statue of a man. And that's what I wrote in that song. You know, he's just, he's just shining. He's a shining crown up there and he's, he's so confident and it's, it's kind of some things maybe I made up about him that helped me that, gosh, I see this guy as immovable. He's almost immortal. And obviously we found out he was mortal and, uh, how that affected me. But, uh, I learned a lot from him uh, as far as uh, confidence on stage and uh, sticking to what you think is right for you and, you know, living for yourself. And uh, so this is a, you know, Murder One is a, it's a small nod 
to Lemmy. You know, it obviously doesn't sound like Motorhead. It's not, it wasn't the intention, but, you know, Murder One, that was the, that was the name of his uh, favorite amplifier on stage. And man, it murdered me more than uh, a few times uh, <laughs> going to see them. So a beautiful torture, Lemmy Kilmister. Does bassist Robert Trujillo have a special affinity for any particular song from the album? My favorite songs of Hardwired to Self-Destruct are, I don't know, I think Spit Out the Bone is probably my favorite song just because there's so many twists and turns and it's aggressive, it's got the speed in there. Um, But at the same time, I think that the vocal performance is off the hook I know that the vocal performance is off the hook and the drumming's awesome. It's just a really cool, fun song. And it was also the most challenging song of the record, you know, um, the one that probably raised a lot of questions with our producer, Greg Fiddleman, and, and even myself or whatever. Um, but it's it's turned into a very exciting track and probably one of the most memorable for me. So I'd have to say Spit Out the Bone is my f- favorite song on the album. Metallica were given the opportunity to be the first rock act to play the new home of the Minnesota Vikings, U.S. Bank Stadium, in August of 2016, a show that sold out in minutes and allowed the band to try out their lead single in a live concert. What's it like to play something brand new for the first time? Here's James Hetfield. Being able to play a new song on stage in front of a stadium full of people uh, can be really nerve-wracking, but I tell you, we were so, I was so confident in that song and really, really, I'm very proud of this song. Uh, short, sweet, hard, and to the point, um, hardwired, uh, playing it for the first time. It was a blast and people reacted to it right away. You just, you, you never know. But if a fast song like that, you know, people are going to just start moving. You know, if uh, you're playing a new song live, you expect people to stand there and just listen and try and soak it in. It made a move right away. So that uh, that instantly made me feel like we had connected. So are the guys still having as much fun as they've ever had? Here's the new guy, Robert Trujillo. Yes, I've been in, in, in the business of hard rock for a long time, and I feel honored and blessed um, to play with my heroes, ranging from Ozzy Osbourne and Jerry Cantrell and, um, you know, Mike Muir from Suicidal Tendencies, even my, my good mate Benji Webb from uh, Skindred, you know, over there in the, in the UK. It's just, an, it's just a blessing to play with my heroes and so many uh, incredible musicians. I mean, on all, all fronts, you know. I, uh, I feel in a lot of ways that in the world of, of heavy metal and hard rock, it, it, it's like there's just so many creative outlets. There's so many ways to go. And, um, and I love a challenge. So to, to, to be with Metallica and to sort of have my place there, whether it's to support a song idea that James has already prepared or to bring in something of my own, or just to jam or or you know or playing the big stages or whatever it is it's you know I'm in there to support the team and um and it's just fun in general I mean we we played a small show at Webster Hall recently and that was great you know it was just as amazing as playing Stade de France to 85,000 people you know so it's always fun the style of music we play is fun playing bass is fun playing with your friends and 
and having a good time and seeing the world and um, being able to bring the family out. So life is good and um, doesn't feel like a job. You know, it feels like an adventure. This is the conclusion of Metallica. In their words, the World Wired Tour continues through 2017 and beyond. And it's anyone's guess as to what lofty goals the band have set for themselves going forward. Perhaps Metallica in space will someday one day become a reality and the band can conquer places not of this earth. A big thanks to Cliff, Warren, and Adon at Q Prime Management, Mike from MX2 Media, and of course, James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, Kirk Hammett, and Robert Trujillo for answering all of my questions and offering some unique perspective into the albums of one of the greatest bands on planet Earth, the mighty, mighty Metallica. I'm Andy Hall. Thanks for listening.